This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, DePaul University's Kelly Pope discusses her book, Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories, and Secrets from the Trillion-Dollar Fraud Industry. She examines the rising cases of fraud in the U.S. and explores some of the motivations for committing white-collar crimes. She's interviewed by former SEC Commissioner Kathleen Casey. I am very pleased to be here to talk with Professor Kelly Richmond Pope about her new book, Fool Me Once, Scams, Stories, and Secrets from the Trillion-Dollar Fraud Industry. Kelly, I really enjoyed reading your book. I thought it offered a, a really fascinating window into the world of fraud and the different types of people who commit it and those that are harmed by it. I thought the storytelling... Well, thank you for that. Yeah, yeah. I thought the storytelling made it really relatable. And, you know, again, it kind of shines a light on fraud in a way that most people don't fully appreciate, and yet they really need to understand better. Um, I also know, you know, you're a forensic accounting expert, and you've dedicated your career to educating people on fraud. You know, teach, write, speak, and also um, have produced um, a, a couple of films. So you, you clearly have a passion for helping people understand the psychology, the typology of fraud. And so I, I'm wondering, you know, what prompted you to write Fool Me Once and how did you come up with a title? So oh, two great questions. Um, first, thank you for being here with me and, and reading the book and enjoying the book. Yeah. Um, what really prompted me to, to write Fool Me Once was um, Rita Cronwell getting out of federal prison early. So um, back in 2017, I did a documentary called All the Queen's Horses, and it chronicled the largest municipal fraud in U.S. history. And Rita Cronwell was the perpetrator, and she was uh, she embezzled $53.7 million and was sentenced to 19 years and seven months in federal prison. And we in the community, the Chicagoland community, the fraud community, the world, thought that she was settled in federal prison for you know, the next 20 plus 20 years. Well, something called COVID happened. And when COVID happened, there were some inmates that wrote um, into their judges and asked if they could be considered for comp- release from federal prison um, under the, the Compassionate Release Program. Right. And um, Rita Cronwell actually wrote her first letter in 2020. And when she wrote this letter, I learned about it and I wrote a blog about it. I had a blog on Forbes at the time and it was really questioning, will the largest municipal fraudster get out early? And this question was maybe, who knows, maybe. Now we know that in the federal system, you don't serve, you serve 85% of your time. So the likelihood of someone getting sentenced to almost 20 years and just serving half of that in the federal system really doesn't happen. So I, I never thought that she would get out early. No. And so one of the criteria that needed to be satisfied was that she needed to have served at least 50% of her sentence. Well, in 2020, she hadn't done that. So that's why she was writing the letter. She had satisfied some of the other criteria, but the 50% uh, sentencing uh, or serving 50% of her sentence, she had not done yet. Well, fast forward to 2020, and there were um, rumors. People were texting me from Dixon saying, did you hear that Rita's going to get out early? And I was like, oh, no, she's not going to get out. Of course not. I mean, she was. Right. this is the largest municipal fraudster in U.S. history. Of course, she's not going to do a little, a little over half. Of course, that just would not send a good message. Well, she got out. And when she got out, I was shocked. 
And people started asking me, hey, Kelly, are you going to do another documentary? And I was like, absolutely not. But I felt like there was something that I wanted to say. And I, I knew I wasn't going to do another film, but there was a message that I wanted to, to share and look a little bit deeper. So I put my thoughts to my laptop and I started writing and writing and writing and writing. So that is how Fool Me Once was born. Well, I've got to... Where t- the t- Oh, sorry. Go ahead. I was going to say, I I did uh, watch the documentary and I found it absolutely riveting. And, you know, again, you know, understanding the the amount of 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 fraud that she was able to, um, you know, engage in was just shocking when you think this small, you know, um, this this small municipality and the fifty three million dollars. Again, it's over 20 years. Right. Um, But um, just the scale of it. And um, and what I thought you did so nicely in that documentary is that, you know, you made it clear how easy it is, you know, for fraud to go undetected. And and so much of that was dependent on the trust that this person was able to, you know, develop and engender not just in her work, but in her community. So people were so shocked. Um, so so I really thought it was really nicely done. And, and you also did it in a way where you humanized, uh, you humanized it. So, you know, again, you think about fraudsters and you think about him in a really sort of calculating way. But I think, you know, again, I want to talk a little bit more about, about your, how you do this in your book. But you sort of bring to life the different stories. And these are people you know, oftentimes, right? Um, they're your friends, your neighbors, your, your colleagues at work. Um, so, so again, congratulations on that. I really thought that was a, a fantastic documentary. Um, so, you know, you, you mentioned in your book how ubiquitous fraud is, right? And and so it's a trillion-dollar problem. Um, what is the danger that fraud is viewed as a business as usual, you know, and, in our society, and we become so desensitized to it um, because you can find it everywhere? So I'm curious how you, you just as a high level, you know, how you think about just because of its ubiquitousness, how it desensitizes us as a so- society. Well, I, I love the question. And I think um, to an earlier point you made of humanizing fraud, that was something that I wanted to do in the film and I wanted to do in the book. And I want to humanize it from several perspectives. Rita Cronwell is a type of fraudster and she is what I classify as an intentional perpetrator. And I think when we talk about this idea of it being humanized in society or becoming business as usual, the the norm, we are allowing this category of intentional perpetrators to just go, just just run rapid. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the conversations that I wanted to have in the book and really open up is that everyone is not like Rita. There are other kinds of perpetrators that don't necessarily steal because of greed or steal for greed. They sometimes just find themselves in these awkward situations, whether it's from following their boss's orders blindly or wanting to help a friend or a colleague and they just make a transaction or do something because they want to be helpful. So I think that this idea of everyone is like Rita allows us to think that fraud only happens to them, not me. And I wanted people to understand, no, everyone, we all have the propensity to steal and we all have the propensity to whistleblow too. And we'll talk about that later, but I wanted it to feel more universal. 
one of the things that um, I did highlight, and as you as you um, brought to light, is it was easy for Rita to steal the money from Dixon, Illinois. A lot of frauds are very, very simple. Everyone is not a complex transaction like an Enron. Some things are just simple and you can execute a simple fraud by yourself and steal millions and millions and millions over a very long period of time. So that was the message that the documentary, I hope, uh, shared to, to, to many because fraud can be simple. A comment that I loved uh, that I was reading a research article that I, I'm just going to steal and, and uh, credit the authors is that fraud does not happen in a vacuum. It happens in a village. And so there's tons of reasons why it happens. And so I hope that through the storytelling through the book, people are able to see the village, everybody that either turned a blind eye or just didn't put the proper internal controls in place or didn't pay attention to the red flags that allowed it to perpetuate. Yeah, and I thought that was really well done. And, and you, as you highlighted, you, you sort of create these categories, right, for perpetrators, prey, and then whistleblowers. Those are your three main um, categories. And then within them, you go in and then you further refine the kinds of um, uh, people. So whether they're intentional, accidental, or righteous, um, and then similarly for, for prey and whistleblowers. And so when I think about that, I'm just wondering, as you were writing the book, given all the experiences that you've had, or all of the you know, people that you met, all of the different kinds of fraud and fraudsters that you've seen, how you came up with those subcategories, right? And defining between like attentional accidental or bystanders and organizational targets, sure. and then specifically on whistleblowers in particular, because I thought that was really... And um, important distinctions between how you thought about whistleblowers. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. You know, first it was, um, I'll start with the perpetrator uh, section. And first it was this idea of a self-reflection of my emotions. When I have invited someone to class or I have reached out to someone to do an interview, I noticed that I had these different reactions to some of the offenders that I'm talking to. Some of them I was really angered by. Others, I had a level of empathy that that shocked me. And so I started thinking about my own feelings and then thinking about the responses that my graduate students have when the offenders are in the classroom. And what I started to realize is movies are made of the intentional perpetrators. You know, uh, the Bernard Madoffs or even the um, Enron execs. Some of them are intentional perpetrators. But there's these other two categories that pull on your heartstrings in a different way. And those are the accidental perpetrators and the righteous perpetrators. And what I argue is if that, those are the categories that if we ever saw ourselves engaged in a, comp, a, a compromising situation, we might be more likely to be an accidental perpetrator or a righteous perpetrator. The accidental perpetrator is your accountant, is your lawyer, is your financial planner, is somebody that um, is a part of a team, team player, people pleaser, trust their boss, trust the orders, trust the process, and wants everything just to move peacefully and efficiently. And you will do whatever it takes uh, to do that. You often don't even receive any direct personal benefit. It's just keeping your job. You know, your boss may ask you, book this transaction. I know it's probably not what we should do, but we'll fix it later. And you are loyal. You are loyal to that company. You are loyal to your team. 
and you do it hoping that it reverses or you can fix it later and it doesn't get fixed. And that can then snowball into a fraudulent situation. I've noticed when I have done those interviews with offenders or when those um, those cases are, are I'm, I'm dissecting those to, to teach from them, I feel terrible. And I think it's because I see my friends, my, my, I'm the only one in my friend group that is a professor. Everybody else works professionally. You know, they're corporate execs at this point in life. And I see their, their careers in, in these cases. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I see how this can happen. And so when you think about the righteous perpetrator category, those are people that have reached a certain status point in their careers, in their organizations, and they may use internal resources to help a friend. And my first experience of fraud, my first fraud story, I think we all probably have one, but my first fraud story was with um, a neighbor. When I was growing up in high school, the neighbor behind me, uh, the family, the, the father and the family went to federal prison for money laundering and wire fraud at the bank that he worked at. And the reason why he did it was he was helping a friend who had a struggling business. So let's assume that he, um, the friend didn't have all of the requirements to meet the loan requirements of the bank. And he was able to just get him through the system, put not put the, uh, um, the, the loan on the, in the bank mm-hmm. records as it should be. He just wanted to get his friend through to help his friend. He didn't receive any direct personal benefit, but he had reached a certain level in his organization that made it easy for him to help someone else. And so typically this type of person has star status in their organization. They can sort of do no wrong and do whatever they want to do. They can they can um, get over the rules or get around the rules because people have have appointed them as as the one. And so they tend to have a lot of power and can get things done. They can also end up being a perpetrator. And so when those people come to class and share their stories, I notice my own emotions and I'm paying attention to how the students respond to them. I uh, did an event with one of the um, individuals out of the book and this same phenomenon of, of the audience embracing this person happened again. And it's because of the category that this person is in. They are a righteous perpetrator. So you empathize with them in a way that you would never empathize with an intentional perpetrator. So I really wanted people to be a lot more self-reflective and stop saying it's them and never me. But I want them to say this could be me and me wanting them to feel like this could be me is introducing these two other categories where you could see yourself falling into. You know, I was um, I really enjoyed your personal example, too. Right. So it just shows how um, uh, simple it could be. Right. I mean, you get an, an extra, you know, handbag that you ordered in the mail and, you know, you think, you know, do I send it back? Do I keep it? You know, and obviously you made the right choice um, about sending it back. But again, I think, you know, we all face these kinds of ethical questions through our daily experiences that, um, you know, essentially would have been like us. You know, you're defrauding the company if you know it's not yours and you haven't paid for it. But I thought that was a really helpful way for people to understand just how simple, right? These kinds of decisions are that you're faced with in a daily way and how you could fall into you know, being an accidental perpetrator. Um, Absolutely. 
Absolutely. And I, I think um, one of my goals with the book was to make it relatable. And so if you notice, a lot of the examples and the a lot um, a lot of the cases are are they may be smaller to medium size, but they're relatable. You think about it because I think if you asked a sample of 10 people, eight of them would tell you I've received something that I didn't pay for before. They would tell you that that's happened to them, whether it's receiving too much change back um, when you're at a retail outlet or you ordered something and you got more than you expected. What do we do when we have those opportunities? Do we take or do we tell? And so I think that asking ourselves those questions is very important. What was shocking to me with my own personal story, when I did receive that purse, that second purse, and I asked my friends, my, my yeah. friends that work in corporate, I said, what would you do? They were like, you just keep the purse and sell it. It's not your fault. You didn't ask for a second purse. It's their fault. And I, th- and I said, well, what is my role in this? Do I write the wrong or do I just write it out? And so when we think about our role in sort of this fraud cycle, we have a voice. And we have, you know, we have the good voice and the bad voice. What are we going to do? Because we have power over some of the choices that can help stop some of the fraud. So I I like to use examples that are relatable. I think a lot of times what we do in our fraud training and even in our conversations, we focus on the big, big, big cases. And that's not always relatable to the masses. Very few of us become um CEOs or CFOs of publicly traded companies but many of us have a corporate credit card that is sitting in our wallet or our handbag that we can abuse in a second so we need to be using those types of examples because those relate to more people yeah and i thought again you nicely you know helped across all of the different kinds of frauds that you highlighted just how how people rationalize it right um, so I wanted to turn, you know, because you also highlight in the book, obviously COVID, you know, presented a lot of um, new and different opportunities for fraud, including cyber criminals. Um, and I'm just wondering when you think of, and this is sort of getting to sort of, you know, uh, what we think about the traditional fraudster. Um, when you think of the scale of the fraud under the CARES Act, and in, in particular the, the, the PPP program, um, we're not just talking about serial fraudsters here, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, neighbors, small businesses, et cetera, that you wouldn't have normally thought that they would have had the opportunity to engage in this fraud. And um, I'm just trying to understand, you know, how concerned should we be in your mind about the willingness of so many people to sort of improperly take advantage of these programs and, um you know, what do you, what, you know, is it just because it was too easy and they didn't think that it was free money? Um, you know, what contributes to, you know, people that normally wouldn't have found themselves in undertaking, so essentially, you know, defrauding the government um, to do that? I think that we should all be very concerned about what COVID brought out in the, in the fraud environment. Because as you said, it introduced a whole new profile of a white collar criminal that we never thought of. We never really thought of entrepreneurs, uh, nurses, uh, pharmacists, um, chiropractors being 
white collar felons. We never thought about them because there's so many studies uh, in the research that profile what a white collar felon looks like. Never was it the person that has a pizzeria in a strip mall. (laughs) And so what I think that showed us is a vulnerability that's in our system that we really didn't think that we had because we always said it's them. It's those career criminals. It's those organized um, criminal rings that are waiting for an opportunity. But what COVID showed us is it's all of us. All of us saw an opportunity and said, hmm, the government is helping businesses quicker. They've relaxed some, some of the rules that they had before. Maybe, just maybe, I'll try it out. And the likelihood of me getting caught is probably lower, so I'm going to try it out. That should be concerning that so many of us that would never consider ourselves a white-collar felon or doing anything unethical tried it out. And so I, I, I think that um, I was shocked. I mean, as I started reading about all the PPP loan fraud, I couldn't believe how the profile had shifted so quickly. And I think that's concerning for all of us. You know, do you think, it, do you think it's because people think it's victimless? Well, you know, I, I do think that. I, I think that there's a there's a way that we think about the government. You know, whether we think that there's an endless supply of money, they can just print more money if we need it. Um, there, there's not a human associated uh, with it. So let me just take, take, take. I think there's a mindset around there are no victims when it comes to the government. And we know that's not true because all of the cost somehow, some way get passed back to the consumer in some type, some fashion, right? And so I I think that we think that there are no victims. There are always victims, always victims. Yeah. And I know you highlighted um, just again, sort of, you know, where it escalated even more during COVID, but, you know, return fraud is one of the, you know, the the biggest um, growing frauds um, that there is now. And, you know, again, with the growth of e-commerce and, um, uh, you know, maybe again, the sort of anonymity that comes with an exchange, right? Um, it's so, so easy to do. Yeah. You know, it is so easy to do. If you think about it, if we bought an item and broke it at home, we could easily take that broken item and say, oh, I just bought this and it, 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 I brought it, I opened the box and it was broken. And because we have embedded trust in our society as an internal control, more than likely the store is going to take it back, no questions asked. And we know entities that will just take it back no matter what, just to keep customers satisfied. And we can manipulate those types of systems um, in a very terrible way. So return fraud, it's so easy. And what I, what I, wh- why I brought, brought that up in the book is because there's so many people that do it. You know, when I do workshops, Um, A lot of times I will walk in the room and I'll say, show of hands, raise your hand if you're ethical. Whole room room raises their hand. And then about 10 minutes into that, I'll start going through scenarios of, you know, what would you do kinds of scenarios. And I put some of those scenarios in the book. And it's interesting when you start going through and pushing people on on these, these choices, what would you do? You often find a nice bell curve of, of different responses. And that's our society, you know? So take a pulse on who you're managing because that will tell you the type of internal controls you need to put in place to protect your organization. 
You know, and the flip side, right, of just how easy it is, you know, for, for people to engage in fraud, even if accidental fraud. But when you think about victims, um, and you, I think you do this really nicely as well, you know, one is there's this public perception about, you know, what, you know, whether victims are, they were greedy or gullible or, or stupid. But I think you also make it clear that all of us could easily be victims of fraud, right? We often are without even knowing about it. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that, right, on the victim side, um, you know, and the different, you talk about innocent bystanders, which most of us would be, um, and then the organizational targets, right, where you're going after an organization, a, a company, a nonprofit. Um, can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So um, midpoint in the book, um, I break down prey victims um, into two components, into, uh, innocent bystanders and organizational targets. And these two groups were, again, inspired by my work on the documentary and the Dixon fraud because the residents of Dixon were innocent bystanders. They went, they cast their vote, they picked um, a mayor, um, the mayor hired a city comptroller, and the residents really didn't know what was happening. You know, they thought they were safe with everybody that, that was in office. They didn't know. Um, and the innocent bystander category is something that I wanted to, to call out because there are some things that we have no control over. And we need to recognize that because every victim is not gullible. If you drink water today, you have unless you did a test to make sure that water was OK for you to drink, you trusted that everything pure was in the water that you just consumed. If you uh, live in a community and you went outside and you inhaled and exhaled air, you assume that it's not polluted. When you, If you flew, anytime this, I just got off a plane, you know, you you assume that the safety, safety checks have happened. There are things that we cannot control. And so that's a very vulnerable place for a lot of us. And I wanted to, to use that category because when I was doing the documentary, a lot of people we're saying things like, oh, the residents of Dixon, they didn't know. Of course, how could they not know all that money is missing? And so I wanted to bring a voice to this component of innocent bystanders. When you sometimes you just don't know and you don't know how to check for it. Now, on the flip side, the town of Dixon was an organizational target. And we have a lot of targets because um, I use the example in the book of banks. A lot of the actions of banks are routine, and we all know what banks do. A lot of us can pinpoint when the money is picked up, when money is coming into the bank. We know the banking hours. We know the process. It, it's known. And so when you have known processes like that, it's easier for you to become a target. So I wanted, I wanted readers to understand these two components so that they can think about their own organizations and sort of where they where they fall in that. Yeah. And, you know, you, you talk about, you know, red flags. Right. So what I thought was interesting that you cite a survey that, you know, for a lot of the major fraud cases, you know, red flags are often overlooked and, you know, that it's really important. You use the word gut instinct, which I think is is really good. But, you know, the importance of, of following your gut instinct um, when you're making rational decisions and um, and you talk about you created your own list of red flag triggers, which I agree with. Number one, by the way, if you don't like dogs, it, that throws me off as well. Um, but I'm just kind of curious, you know, when you talk about red flags and and why people miss them um, and then how people should really think about, you know, what their triggers are 
Um, talk a little bit more about how that would be helpful and whether that would lead perhaps to greater awareness of fraud and perhaps even speaking up. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I do provide a, a list of, of, of red flags for myself. And as silly as some of them may be, it's they're things that should, should caution you. And uh, you brought up the one, if you don't like dogs, I'm sort of like, hmm, I don't know. If you, <laughs> if you don't like, you know, if you can't say thank you or please, uh, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure I'm going to do business with you well. You know, there are things, there, there are these cautions or roadblocks that should slow you down before you just jump in um, with a person or doing doing a transaction or what have you. And so I think that we as a society want to trust people. And we often don't feel comfortable pushing back when we need to. But knowing your triggers is very important. Um, I'll give you an example, and I I believe this is in the book, but it's an example that I use in the classroom all the time. And it's just an observation of of human behavior. And and, And this is a good example because when you think about how we've been conditioned to think, the best example that I can always give is what happens when a fire alarm goes off. You're in a building, let's say you're on the 30th floor. You're in a building and the fire alarm goes off. You're sitting at a desk and most people do nothing because we've now become conditioned to believe it's a false alarm. A fire alarm going off for me means get out of the building as fast as you possibly can because it might be a fire. I mean, that's the whole purpose. That is the red flag. And so we've been so conditioned to ignore red flags. And I I use that example so frequently because why? Why, when we see red flags, do we assume the worst is not looming? Why should we do that? Because the worst could be looming. So go ahead and just protect yourself. What harm would it be to get out of the building in the event that it's a fire? What harm would it be to put those controls in place because something just seems off? An odd email from your boss, your CEO, your CFO, that just has a different tone than how you know your CEO or CFO speaks. It's more harm. It would be more harm for you to follow through and notice something seems off, but I'm not going to push back. Then it would be to push back and say, this doesn't sound like the way my CFO talks. Let me pick up the phone and call this person. Mm We just don't feel comfortable doing that and we have to. And so one of the messages that I I hope that I'm spreading in the book is it is so easy for fraud to happen. So pay attention to the red flags and act on them. Follow that gut. If you, because that oftentimes speaks to you first before your rational mind does. Yeah, absolutely. And, And I think as you note, I mean, oftentimes people think, well, somebody else will be raising it, right? Because Absolutely. there's, it's so everybody knows, right? It, you're, it's happening to to more than just you, um, so you're relying on somebody else to. to and everybody uh, might know. Yeah. Everybody might know, but the question is, is everybody going to speak? Right. You know, I um, I talk about another personal scenario that happened in the in, in the book, and um, this is sort of moving us into the whistleblowing conversation. But I'll just I'll open by saying I had a a cheating incident in my class. And when I approached my students by saying, you know, who saw this? I had 40 students. Yeah. All of them saw it. Only one person spoke. And I was shocked by the fact, yes, I was upset that there was a cheating situation. But what I was more surprised by is the environment that I thought that I created where everyone felt for, felt comfortable and accountable 
to come forward wasn't the environment that I thought I had. So um, we, to your point that you just said, we always think somebody else is going to do it. You know, even in Dixon, I'm sure people did think that there were odd things going on in the financial statements, but somebody else, somebody smarter than me, somebody that knows numbers better than me will probably pick it up. So I'm just going to sit back and hopefully someone picks that up. And that never happened. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, when you, when you talk about victims and um, sort of trust being, you know, in the, at, the, at the heart of it in some respects in terms of making yourself more susceptible to being a victim of fraud, you know, there are certain populations that are more vulnerable. And I know you talk about or you've observed elder fraud. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and, and why you see, um, you know, the opportunity there being greater because of maybe greater trust that, you oh, know, yeah. that, uh, that older people um, will, will have. And so chat a little bit about that, if you could. Sure. You know, the, um, the elderly are a very vulnerable population. Um, they tend to be more trusting. Um, they tend to have more money. And they may not have a caregiver protecting them on the finance side. Mm-hmm. And so for those reasons, they tend to be prime, prime targets. And you, they also, as we get older, we tend to say things about ourselves that we know are um, diminishing. Our, our eyes aren't as good. Our hearing isn't as good. Our thinking isn't as faster. And so we recognize some of those things that are happening to us. So as we get older, we tend to discount our thinking even more. And I think that when you get an email or you get a phone call saying, I am your long lost um, niece (laughs) or nephew, and I am stuck in this um, third world country and I need you to wire me $10,000. And there's enough information that they've collected about your family or yourself that makes it sound believable. The elderly can tend to fall victim to that. You also think that elderly people um, tend to experience life in a different way. They may have lost a spouse. They have may have lost a sibling. They may be, may be the only person in their life. So there's a level of loneliness that they can have that also makes them fall victim to fraud or being a good target to a fraudster. So we need to make sure that we are protecting our elderly and our family and asking them the uncomfortable questions that they may not want to answer, but they are prime targets. So, so you also, you've already touched on sort of organizational targets and um, I wondered if you could talk a little bit more about, and certainly some of the the examples that you used, like for small businesses or someone who is an entrepreneur, right? Who's starting a business and is so focused on growing that business. They're not focused on like the back office stuff, right? Sure. Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you, how we should think about um, organizational targets um, and, you know, what companies, what organizations should do, some of the things that they should do to um, mit- minimize the likelihood that they might be a victim of fraud. Sure. Well, you know, I, um, in the book, I talk about um, some entrepreneurs who were victims and I think that we also live in a society where we don't always feel comfortable talking about money. Um, And we don't feel comfortable for whatever reason, people don't like accounting. Now, of course, I'm an accounting (laughs) professor by training. So I'm I'm the biggest cheerleader that everybody needs to take at least one accounting class. Everybody needs to feel comfortable 
reading a financial statement and your basic financial statements, your four basic financial statements, income statement, balance sheet, statement of cash flow, statement of retainers, you need to at least be able to understand that if you run a business. You cannot outsource that component of your business. And so I think entrepreneurs make for good targets because they may have a great idea and they may be passionate about this idea. And they they may be so passionate, they just wanna be out in the field selling, selling, selling and talking about it. But you have to know your numbers. You have to be able to manage your numbers. And so if we outsource the engine behind our business, which is where the accounting component lives, we are just opening the door for a person to exploit us or defraud us. And, and I don't want to see that happen. So the, the cases that I profile in the book are really simple examples of entrepreneurs not paying attention to their the their fiscal managers. They've outsourced that function. And I'm not saying that you can't get assistance with it, but you should understand it so that you can always ask a very important question. You know, just being able to learn the accounting equation, assets equals liabilities plus stockholders equity. You know, why would someone want to show more assets than they have or show a higher revenue than they have? Why? Just being able to ask some of those questions can help protect your business. And, and so, a lot of entrepreneurs, I think, get victimized because they're not paying attention. They are not even paying attention to the the bank statements yeah. that that profile every transaction that has happened on their bank account. They have outsourced that. And that's just sort of like giving your social security number and your health card, health benefit card to a complete stranger. You just don't do things like that. Yeah, I think you you had mentioned um, in one of the um, examples, it would have been as easy as just opening the mail, right? That would have allowed them to identify the fraud earlier. Um, and, and not that, you know, a, a CEO or a founder always has time to do that. But I think it was a great illustration of just how, um, what a small step. Um, small step. Could have, yeah, it's process. And I think that you, you that's a, another important point. So aside from like ideas of segregation of duties or uh, internal controls or some kind of controls, um, you know, given the scale of your business, um, talk a little bit about, about that, um, because you know, I think a lot of your examples highlight the importance of those. Well, it, and what I, I, I wanted people to understand that sometimes internal controls are simple. Just paying attention, just opening the mail, just knowing that your eye is on the inflows and outflows of cash for your business is important. Paying attention to how many people were issued a corporate credit card is important. Paying attention when someone departs from your, your business, that card has been um, terminated is important. Paying attention to who has access to terminate those cards is important. And so it's some of these little things that we overlook. And so I hope that that's the message when um, when when people read that they read that message and they're they're self-reflective because I think sometimes if we use very, very, very complex examples, what a reader or an owner of a business can say is, oh, my business isn't that complicated. That's not really for me. We all can just open our mail or just pretend that it was open because what that what that lets someone know is you're paying attention. And so we have to think about not only our verbal communications around our businesses, but what our nonverbal communications show and say, because people are paying attention. Yeah. And so, you know, I want to turn now um, to the to the third category, which is whistleblowers. 
And um, you, you talk about how you have a soft, soft spot for whistleblowers and you consider them to be heroes, right? Um, Absolutely. But, but not all whistleblowers, you know, are necessarily, you know, have no, noble motives. Um, but I guess I'd ask, you know, does that matter in how we think about different kinds of whistleblowers? So, you know, great question. And um, so I did a TED talk uh, years back, uh, Why Do We Hate Whistleblowers? And um, it started out as a TEDx talk and then um, got promoted and showed on the TED website. And it was then renamed to How Whistleblowers Shape History. And um, what I think is important about the whistleblower category is just like we talked about perpetrators, all perpetrators are not the same. All whistleblowers are not the same. And it's important because when you say the word whistleblower, it leads to people saying words like snitch, rat, tattletale, traitor. They're untrustworthy. And so we actually need whistleblowers. But what I argue in the book is those terms that we use when we're talking about whistleblowers really is just one category of whistleblowers, and those are vigilante whistleblowers. Vigilante whistleblowers take on the war and the battle. If they see an injustice, whether it has anything to do with them or not, they're telling. The vigilante whistleblower is like that neighbor that just sits <laughs> in the window and just pays attention as to what's going on. If they see somebody speeding down the street, they're calling the police. If they see someone polluting on the street, they're calling They're calling the village to tell them someone just did this. They might be a little bit of a nuisance, but we need them. Yeah. That's the vigilante whistleblower, and they play a role. But these other two categories... I don't think deserve to be called a snitch or rat or tattletale. And that's the accidental whistleblower and the noble whistleblower. And so th the accidental whistleblower category was really um, inspired by Kathy Swanson. And Kathy yeah. Swanson was the whistleblower for my documentary, All the Queen's Horses. She is the one who discovered the $53.7 million fraud that was being committed by her boss. She is that person. She is not the person that thought her boss was stealing. And so let me launch this internal investigation and figure out all these things that were going on. And then I'm going to present all these findings to the mayor. That is not who Kathy was. Kathy was just doing her job, head down, doing her job. And she noticed these um, withdrawals out of an account that she was unaware of. And at first it shocked her. She didn't know what to do. After a few days, she then alerted her superior, which was uh, the late Mayor Burke, and then that's how the investigation launched. Notice that I didn't say Kathy was suspicious and launched her own investigation. That's not what she did. She stumbled upon this. Kathy and people like Kathy don't even necessarily identify as a whistleblower in the general sense. They're not, I'm going to see it. If I see it, I'm going to say it. That's not who she was. She just sort of stumbled upon it. The noble whistleblower is a sort of a subset of the accidental category, but the noble whistleblower is a person that is among a team and their team has decided to either turn a blind eye to something or they're engaged in something unethical. And that noble whistleblower steps outside of the group and blows the whistle. And they too don't always identify as a whistleblower because they are following what they know to be correct. Their team has the problem, not them. And so when they step outside of that group, 
they face bully, they face being bullied, um, being um, demoted, maybe even death threats because they've stepped outside of the team to speak up. And when you do that, you're sort of shedding light to the bad behavior of others and the others don't like that. The noble whistleblower, very similar to the accidental whistleblower, doesn't even identify as a whistleblower because they're saying, I'm a safety, I'm a safety patrol inspector. Isn't my job to inspect and to make sure we've met our certain safety protocols? If we haven't, am I now a whistleblower because I'm just doing my job? No, they shouldn't be. So what I wanted to do in creating these categories is to really change the narrative as much as I could around this concept of those that speak up because we need all of them. We need all of these different categories, but maybe if we can understand the roles of this accidental and this noble category, maybe we'll lessen up on our negative connotations around the word whistleblower. You know, and so this is a, it's a really good point. And, and, and I struggle a little bit too, in terms of un- understanding the difference between sort of speaking up, right, which you want to encourage in your organizations um, and being a whistleblower. So how do you think about that line between, you know, being a whistleblower and just sort of doing what you're supposed to do when you're an organization sure. and you're sure. reporting, you know, what you what you see as being, you know, possibly problematic? Yeah, I, I think I think it is a fine line. And I, and I appreciate you bringing that point up, because I think speaking up is the first step when no one is listening and you keep speaking, then you become a whistleblower. Because there there is a stage, you know, and I think the first stage of it is finding your voice and speaking up. Hopefully you have a, a sponsor, an advocate within your organization that you can speak to, but it's when you're not listened to and the behavior that you're speaking up about still goes on and you haven't been able to stop it and you still keep going forward. Then I think you cross over into this whistleblower status and that's when it can get a little bit harder. Something else about, I think, the vigilante whistleblower in comparison to the other two categories, the vigilante knows what they're getting themselves into. They are ready for the fight. They know that they may get demoted. They know that they may lose friends. They know what is coming. It's those other two categories that are completely shocked when those things happen to them. But the vigilante, they're ready for it. And that's their whole point. They, 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 not that they look for it. It's just they're ready for it when it, when it presents itself. So, so again, it sort of highlights the importance of companies obviously having an environment that supports speaking up and having channels, different channels of reporting. So whether or not they feel comfortable in reporting, you know, up through the chain or anonymously, right? Um, so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, you know, what what more you think companies should be doing, and, sure. and are, are there any are there any reasons why companies don't do this because it would be so yeah. important, yeah. You know, I'll start with your second question first. I think that companies don't do it because there's a reputational risk when you come forward with these types of things. But this is why I'm a a strong proponent of setting sound internal whistleblowing policies that everybody knows works. And so I am never saying go to the press, go outside of your organization. That's not what I'm saying. Hopefully you have created an environment where people can report internally and something happens and this type of reporting is encouraged and celebrated and rewarded when it happens. I think um, when we don't do those things, um, people aren't going to come forward when they see something. So we want to make sure that we are creating the environment um, that people feel comfortable. The example that I gave you before about the cheating incident that happened in my class, 
I thought that I created this environment where all students would come forward. Well, as I reflect back on when that happened, I only talked about it and the importance of of if you see something wrong in the class, say something. I only said it once. And I probably should have said it routinely, maybe monthly, maybe before every exam, maybe maybe even saying, hey, if you ever see something, you can use this Google number to just report <laughs> anonymously and you don't have to attach your name to it. Maybe I should have, maybe I didn't even create a mechanism. I just said it and moved on. So how can I really think that I set an environment by just saying it once? So let me do a better job of making sure that that future whistleblower in my class feels protected if they do come forward. I also think that it's tough um, um, providing anonymity because if it, if the allegation is strong enough and severe enough, at some point it may your identity may need to be revealed to a few. So confidentiality, I think, is something that I think we need to talk a little bit more of because we can't always promise absolute anonymity. You know, I know that you wrote a piece in Forbes, um, you know, uh, talking about how educators can help encourage more millennials to become whistleblowers. Right. And I'm just wondering what what you know, what briefly what prompted that? And um, did you have any concerns about whether or not people would be motivated to become whistleblowers? Or what prompted that was the Wells Fargo uh, scandal. And that was when we were reading um, that you had uh, 5,000 employees that opened fraudulent bank accounts in order so they could meet sales numbers. And when that story came to light, I said to him, and and then the whistleblowers were fired. That was the piece. And when that story and that case was going on, I said to myself, how do I teach future business professionals to come forward when they see something, if when they come forward, their organization is gonna fire them? That's a very tough message as an educator. So I wrote this piece um, about about um, what do we tell students? What do you, what do you, you know, companies, organizations, what do you help, how can you help me? Help me help you, how can you help me help these these up and coming business leaders if you're not setting your structure to support them when they see something. So that was really what prompted the um the Forbes blog. I was confused. I mean, I was really literally reaching out um to ask for assistance. And lo and behold, somebody from the Wells Fargo uh, scandal who was an employee, they got fired reached out to me and she shared a story. So that story is actually in a book. I mean, I didn't know that that was going to happen, but I really was looking to the web for what do you do? How do you, how do you fix this problem? Because when corporations behave badly in that regard, it makes it hard for educators like myself to really tell students, oh, you know, go into the organization, read the mission, trust them. They'll trust you. They have the best intentions for you. When they're not seeing that, it makes it tough for us. So that's what prompted the the article. Yeah, no, and again, I think it's a really, really important point, especially when you think about the careers that some of your students may be going into and, you know, the pressures that they may be under, right? Um, Whether they're CFOs or whether they're controllers or chief accountants, you know, those kinds of finance roles um, can really put you under a lot of pressure, especially when the economy is not doing well and then the company is trying to do um, trying to do well. 
um, that's when you see these upticks, right, in um, potential um, uh, financial accounting um, manipulation or, or Absolutely. Yeah, tricks. Um, so, you know, I wanted to sort of step back a little bit. And, you know, again, as an educator, you're a lecturer on fraud all over the world. So you probably have one of the, the keenest, keenest views, right, on how people generally, and as you just mentioned, sort of future business leaders, the younger generation in particular, thinks about these issues. And if I were to step back, you know, should I be encouraged or worried? You know, do we have more perps or prey or whistleblowers coming up the track? Um, you know, to- <laughs> it, it's funny you ask that. So one of the things that I did is um, I created um, a fraud experience, sort of a game, an interactive game. Yeah. And um, it's um, it's on my website. And, you know, it's something fun. You just, you log in, you do it. And it tells you what type of whistleblower you would ever be if you were going to be one and what type of perpetrator you would be if you were ever to be one. And so what, the reason I'm telling you this is because what I find, have found so far, and I think I probably had about maybe 3,000 people that have played it and, and participated. I am finding on the perpetrator side that I am seeing more accidental perpetrators and righteous perpetrators. Yeah. And yes, we're using the word perpetrator in here, but let me say why I find that more encouraging. Because what that's telling me is if people are going to commit a crime, they're going to do it to help an organization or help another person that can be fixed. Yeah, right. That can be controlled with internal controls, proper training. If everybody was falling into, into the intentional perpetrator category, I tell you, we have a problem. <laughs> yeah. I'm not seeing that yeah. on the whistleblower side. What I am seeing is sort of a cross between all three, which is good because we need all types. Now, Although we may not want to deal with vigilante whistleblowers, they're the tough ones. You know, you want a few of them in your organization. You want a few of them on your team because they have your back. They are they they read the ethics policy. They read the conflict of interest statement and they know it inside and out. And they're the ones that are making sure everybody else follows it. You want a few of them. You don't only, you know, having a few accidental whistleblowers in the mist, that's okay. Yeah. But do we want a ton of people that just stumble upon something? Maybe not. Yeah. Now, the noble whistleblowers, they're good. They're very similar to our vigilantes, too, in a way, because they are the people that are going to speak up if everybody else is doing wrong, if they're a part of that team. So you can see the value in all of them. Yeah. No, I mean, and I will be encouraged then from what you are finding, as you said. Um, so, so what is next? You've done this book. Um, you're speaking. You're teaching. Um, you've you've done a documentary. I'm curious if you're going to do any more films. What else is? What's next for you? Um, you know, I don't know. This is the first time um, where I am, and I don't know. Um, the book was probably one of the last projects I felt like I needed to do. So I don't know what's next, you know? Is there another fraud film in me? Maybe, but I, I don't know right now. So to be to be determined. Yeah. Well, I will just tell you that I very much look forward um, to following what you do do next. If you do another documentary, I absolutely will watch it. And I encourage um, all of the listeners um, and viewers um, to, to take a look at the All the Queen's Horses, which is just a fabulous documentary. Um, it's been so great to talk to you, Kelly. Um, I want to thank C-SPAN as well. Um, 
I think that um, you have a fantastic book. I think a lot of people would um, benefit from reading it. So I hope that many, many people will read Fool Me Once, and hopefully they won't be fooled twice. Um, So thanks again. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books. Learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors. In each episode, we report on bestsellers lists and book reviews from around the country. You'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts.